welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring local events and introducing philosophical and humanities topics to the general public. I'm your host, David Tamez. Today, we continue our coverage of state and local elections. Uh, I would like to welcome Democratic candidate for District 2 of the Douglas County Commission, Sarah Taliaferro. Sarah, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, David. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It, I have started all of these conversations in it because I think it's important for voters to not just know your policies, but also to get a sense of who you are and, and your values and the experience you bring to, to that you would bring and uh, hope to bring to the role of county commissioner. Yeah. Um, so I want to start there. Who is uh, Sarah Taliaferro, the person? Well, I am a Midwesterner. I was born here in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, actually lived not too far from one of my childhood homes. And my daughters attended uh, uh, kindergarten in the exact same classroom at Quarterly Elementary that I did. So it's an interesting. My life journey uh, has mostly taken place in Lawrence, but I did live for a big chunk of my life in north central Pennsylvania, very rural, uh, fairly poor, but also very rich and beautiful part of Pennsylvania uh, with my mother who, who moved us there after my parents divorced. So my family, my parents grew up rural. Uh, they both were born in Missouri and all my relatives are from Missouri. So I'll just put that out there. I am an educator. I am a scientist, not a research scientist, but I have that background and I apply problem solving and, and asking questions and framing questions with that background in mind. I'm, I run my own scientific illustration business and I'm a visual, visual communicator. So I help scientists and naturalists and environmentalists and educators tell the story of science. They, you know, combining my images with words because images can be a more universal language that can kind of reach across and can have the ability to invoke some kind of an emotional connection or response as as well as inform. I have taught at KU. I taught scientific illustration for four years there and more recently have been leading groups outdoors, uh, getting in touch with the natural environment. And uh, I, just in June, I did a very tiny little workshops because we were being careful because of COVID, but taking a couple different little fam, non-traditional family groups out at, to do some explorations at Baker Wetlands and Sketch. And so uh, that was really fun. I have two vocations, actually. I, I am this illustrator and artist, and I'm also a community facilitator, a community advocate. And so I've played a lot of different roles and kind of navigated this sometimes that tension between being an advocate in your own community and being a facilitator of conversations, especially around things that can be a little bit difficult. And I learned a lot in doing that, you know, how to, how to navigate that. And 
and what what the balances are and the trade-offs in that. So a lot of what makes me what I am has to do with my parents and my grandparents and my family. Uh, my family is kind of a traditional European settler story. And so I acknowledge that as being who I am and the culture I was developed in. And luckily, I was raised by parents who had a lot of connections to uh, especially the Black community and Indigenous community here in Lawrence as I was growing up and taught me that that what was sometimes cast as the norm was not necessarily what was just or fair. And my father did work in the Douglas County, or not Douglas County, I'm sorry, the Jackson County Jail over in uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, with a team of clinical psychologists and counselors working on jail reform and, and trying to change the way that people were treated in the jail. A lot of, uh, as we see here in Douglas County, there's a high proportion or disproportionate amount of people of color are incarcerated. So. Um, my mother taught it at uh, taught um, home ec at Central Junior High, and uh, you know this is back in the late '60s, early '70s. So, yes, I am also middle aged. <laughs> but uh, she had a chef's class that she taught to all black teenage boys, a lot of whom had been in trouble and the principal was afraid of, had actually locked his door when the teacher sent one of these boys down to the principal's office. And my mother, uh, she, they stood up to her and they defied her the first day. And she just told them to sit down and she smiled at them. And I don't think they know what to made, make of her, but they did eventually sit down and she listened to them and she connected with them and she found out what they really cared about. I remember all of them being over at the house and her, uh, because she could buy better food and they could have more time to talk and to prepare food and for her to kind of coach them or talk to them. And she taught them how to make l'oiseau sans tets, which is a French dish. It's actually beef. And the word, it, it means birds without heads. And it's this kind of tenderized and, and rolled and tied meat with this kind of rich stuffing inside of it and, and a sauce that goes over it. And, and, and they loved it. You know, they, they seemed to love her and she loved them. And so it made quite an impression on me. There was a lot of unrest here. I didn't yet know my stepmother, but my stepmother also was very active here in Lawrence. She was the first uh, executive director of the Ballard Center, the, and she knew Petey Cerf, the woman who had started it in honor of her mother. She was the first executive director of Independence Incorporated and then worked for the city under Rahelio Samuel uh, in the what was then a new division uh, investigating fair housing complaints. All of that has something to, has a lot to do with my, who I am and how I view the world. So one, one of the, I definitely want to get to, to some of that experience and, and some of these questions that I have later, uh, later on in, in the conversation, but I want to, I guess, get directly to um, what sort of things 
Uh, what sort of things you've seen in our community, in the county, uh, over the last few years that has driven you uh, or has motivated you to run for this county commission spot? Uh, it's something that I considered for some time, but really started considering uh, in earnest about four years ago. A, a bit of that did have to do with what was happening in our country, because that was 2016. And uh, we weren't headed in a good direction. We, we really aren't now, to my mind. But uh, I have, I guess I should preface it by saying I had always voted for Nancy Thelman, the woman I'm now running against, and she's always been my representative. In 2016, I was already starting to see a rift in what I envisioned leadership in that role to be and what I was experiencing with her. And at first, it kind of surprised me because we I had always felt very aligned with, with her views and her style of, of governing. And I continued to respect her and like her as a person and think she's a good person. I'm a very responsible person, so I think if I differ with someone, I need to show up. One of the first times that I felt myself diverging was as I watched the whole community grapple with the issue of Rock Chalk, of Rock Chalk Park. And uh, there were a lot of problems that I had with it or a lot of objections, I saw these patterns of people showing up with a lot of money and a lot of connections and influence and then being able to start a big project, which did have benefits for the community, but that there was a de-emphasis on how much one person or a small group of people would greatly benefit from the project and a little bit of an overemphasis about how equitable that project would be or how accessible that would be to the whole community. And that troubled me. The process that people were offered also troubled me. I've been doing affordable housing and homelessness work and environmental advocacy work for years. So I've been to a lot of city commission meetings and some county commission meetings and the process that was offered the public and the public discourse that was often really lacking or flawed troubled me greatly. It, it wasn't what I imagined our whole process should be of a, of a deliberative democracy. So that, that's, that, that was that general framework. In having conversations with the incumbent about the, the rock chalk, uh, her assessment of it was bad process, good outcome. And I thought, I wonder about that because I don't sit quite in the same place with that. Nevertheless, when I read over all the things that she stood for, transparent government and all the things that she, I knew she was doing good works in, I thought, this is my candidate still. Uh, the jail is the thing, the, the process and all these pivot points along the way and and the way that I watched our elected leaders getting more and more walled off, kind of firewalled off from the public, and the public having less and less of a a way to get involved in the deliberations because the deliberations had already occurred, really. 
that's when I thought, okay, in this day and in this age with the complexity of the issues that are facing us and the necessity that we have strong working relationships with each other, I no longer can stand by. I need to step up and run and I need to train in the meantime to make sure I'm ready to do this differently. So I just think it's time for a change. On that point of deliberation and possibly involving the community more in these in these deliberations, one one strain of uh, or topic that's come up quite a bit in, in these debates and the forums is the overall maybe disjointed relationship between the various uh, community uh, governmental offices. So I, I guess there is some disconnect with the county and the city commissions and the and the DA, because all, all these, from my understanding, these offices have something to do um, or have some influence on how the jail is used. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this leads to the question of uh, how do you hope to, if not repair, but at least address the, the seemingly disjointed relationship between these, these various uh, uh, community and city offices? That's that's a key question, I would say. So I'm glad that you're bringing it up. I'd like to step back just a moment and say that I remember a time back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when people who lived outside of Lawrence City limits felt kind of disconnected from their county government. They felt that decisions and the planning and land use and all all of the things really were very Lawrence-centric. And my perception was they actually were correct about that. So that's one thing that I know the incumbent has done is a really good job of making stronger relationships with Baldwin City and Eudora and unincorporated Douglas County. And that's valuable and to be valued. The problem lies in the fact that 80% of the people who live in Douglas County live in Lawrence, Kansas. And as I go around and campaign and talk to people, which is something I was doing already, you know, connecting with the community, I'm hearing more and more people who feel used to feel connected to their county government but who now feel disconnected and disenfranchised. And then certain populations within Douglas County have never felt connected at all or represented. And that seems to be groups of people who are suffering from mental illness or have been homeless. Uh, It's populations of people who have been through the jail or engaged in the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, it is disproportionately people of color. So uh, in 2018, the Lawrence Douglas County Health Department uh, published their health equity report. And in that report on every single measure of public health, uh, their people of color, you know, black, indigenous people of color were doing disproportionately worse every measure of public health. So there are more people, disproportionate numbers in the county jail, but there are disproportionate numbers of people going through family promise and at the shelter. 
who are uninsured, uh, babies having low birth weights. I mean, it just across the spectrum from birth on, we have a, a, a racial injustice systemically th- everywhere you look. And yet that report was a shock to some of our leadership. So I realize I'm taking you on kind of a circular <laughs> response to your answer, but I kind of like to start with the people who are on the fringes and the people who I care the most about to start to tell the story and then start talking about the people in leadership positions. So I don't want to forget that piece because to me, that racial injustice is one of the three major problems that are confronting our community. And we can't be a healthy community until we get this right. That will take a deep collaboration that I don't really, I think we're fully capable of, but we haven't been doing yet. So it kind of gets back to your point. I actually heard one of the, uh, not not a county commissioner candidate, but uh, another elected official candidate in the county race say in a forum, maybe because they were nervous, I don't know, but actually say, elected officials can't hold other elected officials accountable, really. And I thought, well, certainly we've been running the governments and all of these departments and these agencies and organizations as if they aren't fully accountable to each other. So if the sheriff's office says, well, I can't export that data, I can't you know, really participate in that study, then the county commissioners say, okay, well, you know, sheriff says had no time for that. We're not going to do that. And that isn't, that's not how checks and balances work. We, we all need to be holding each other accountable and we don't have to be jerks about it, but, but we need that. Now there has been in the paper and in public meetings, statements that are finger pointing and in the forums, there has been finger pointing saying, well, the city isn't doing this and the city isn't doing that. So it's not seemingly to me, there is a disconnect. And now that we're in a series of multi-level crises, it's not going to serve us well and it can't continue. All of the work that I've done in community is collaborative work. And it it's it's very organic. So depending on what the problem is and who's most impacted and who might have some decision-making power or influence over it, then that kind of decides who I and the other people I'm working with, you know, who we work with. So that shifts all the time. But with the homelessness and housing work that I've done over the years, I've made a lot of connections with people throughout city government. There have been people in the city and and county employees too who've taken, uh, were in my Emerging Leaders Academy class that I took through KU Public Management, for example. And so I have respectful working relationships with a lot of people in city government already and they recognize me. So to me, it's a very natural thing to step in and start talking to all of these folks and my fellow commissioners and saying, what can we do here? You know, what, what roadblocks have we allowed to exist here? And then how do we get around them? I think a lot of people have just been looking for the opportunity to have to be, to have a neutral conversation and to not have a conversation where it seemed necessary to assign blame or, (laughs) absolve oneself of 
the burden of decision making, or I don't know what it is, but yeah. So I agree with you that there is a problem. I don't think it has to be a very onerous thing to to shift that. It just takes a, a, a completely different attitude going in. Do you think that there need to be more, I don't, well, are there formal ways of doing this currently? If not, do you think that it's worth making a formal uh, mechanism to ensure that these entities, these government, local government entities are communicating with one another? Um, I imagine that, and, and I believe there might be a few, uh, maybe a committee of sorts that do involve all uh, a member of, of these different entities, or I may be wrong. Absolutely. And so first of all, to, 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 to part of one of the points that you made, yes, we already have examples of entities or bodies that are, are working fairly well at de- decision-making and they have a clear framework for doing that. It doesn't mean it couldn't be improved upon. Uh, and all of them have formed within the last three years. So there is the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. That one needs some shifts because uh, I sat in on the one meeting I sat in on that. I saw some problems with process, but they've got at least some of the right people at the table. They there are some groups who ought must be represented in that conversation, uh, including people who've been incarcerated. So, uh, so that needs to shift, but, but it's a sound foundation to start. There's a mental health consortium. I think that one, uh, because Bert Nash is the community mental health partner for Lawrence, you know, for Douglas County, and because I'm sensing that there's some kind of a, a fracture in that relationship. There might need to be some outside facilitator brought in to kind of let the whole group in some safe and neutral space decide how they want to do their work going forward. There's the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. Uh, and I worked through Justice Matters and with community housing partners and other community leaders uh, to help collaboratively to help kind of define what that board looks like and and city leaders were very involved in that but that that has a a good sound process that it goes through and recently a project got awarded some funding through the affordable housing trust fund and they got turned down the first two times now that's a little bit of a tricky thing especially if it's a, a a group who's been used to going to city hall and just getting money with not any real strings attached, but partnership that kind of brought it to the table, hung in there with a reasonable amount of grace. And in the end, the community got the project that it really needed that had permanent affordable housing in it, that had all units accepting vouchers and uh, a third entity, third party entity uh, overseeing and vetting who got in there to make sure that people who needed to be served are being served. So it's, you know, it it ended up being successful because that process was sound. And the last one, and it just started last year through the, uh, the Peasley, the Dwayne Peasley Technical Center is the, well, let me see if I get the, the public entity partnerships. And so that is, uh, 
city and school board representatives from Baldwin, Eudora, uh, Lawrence. It's some business partners. It's Haskell, KU, and Baker University. They're working to identify and collaborate on any jobs trainings that are needed throughout the county and coordinate that. So it and they're doing it based on a model and this is Kevin Kelly the executive director who this is his baby but uh it's based on the Mid-America Regional Council which has a government training institute and works with counties with their fire and their police and uh, and their county governments. So it's really brilliant. And and he's got a lot of chops and a lot of experience at leading those kinds of discussions. To step back from a little bit, going forward, there can be times when a community uh, gets stuck or, or something kind of blows up and they realize they need to have some kind of facilitated conversation, some civic discourse about it. And there's actually uh, an International Association for Public Participation, the KU Public Management Center, teaches certification classes and teaches other classes through its its public management program. And so we already have, and we've got the Kansas Leadership Center, who also is training leadership at all levels in all organizations, in all communities, to, to do this very thing, to work collaboratively on deep problem solving and action plans. So, yeah, I mean, we, we really have, we're rich with resources of people, uh, and there are nonprofits in the area. Uh, when I took a certification course in KU Public Management uh, in um, civic engagement, which is just this, it's getting large groups of people together, breaking them down into small working groups, and then, you know, kind of compiling all of the work that they do together. And getting them in this process of deliberation, decision-making, uh, problem-solving, and action planning. Well, I love that. I mean, the organizations I've been working in, that's what they do. So that excites me. But at any rate, uh, one of the women who is my instructors is a woman by the name of Jen Wilder who runs uh, a nonprofit called Consensus.org. And so an example that she gave of this was Garden City, I think, uh, Western Kansas community, where they have a lot of immigrants who work in the, the meatpacking and processing industry. And they, it wasn't just the immigrants, but there was this growing need for affordable housing in Garden City. So they started having conversations with HUD about having public housing for the first time. And it, it blew up. People said, we've always worked hard. We may not have had much, but we've always paid, you know, paid for our own, whatever we have. And we don't believe in handouts or assistance or whatever. You know, we, no. So they brought consensus.org and, and did this process, I think over a period of a couple of years, of deeply engaging the community into surfacing what was at stake for them and why did this matter and, and what were their various perspectives on it. It was a very fruitful process out of what it could have just been a situation that caused ill will 
for years going forward. So yeah, I, I think that's an excellent question. And, and there are all kinds of ways we could do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I, I, I've been here, uh, my wife and I have lived here for about uh, maybe going on six years now. Hmm. And one of the, one of the things that, uh, I, I've been really impressed by in, in Lawrence is this concerted effort by many, uh, maybe maybe not all. I mean, but but many in the community to uh, at least care about being a more just community. Yeah. And and I say that as and I, as I mentioned before before we started recording as some as someone who studies philosophy as someone who is and uh, focuses on ethics, morality, and and justice, especially in law. And it's it's just been really interesting. Uh, from definitely from an academic standpoint, how much our community uh, is has on its mind to be better. Lawrence has been, at least to me, uh, very impressive in that in that sense. But with that in mind, I want to sort of pivot to another question. I don't want the implication of this question to be that data is not important. It's a great deal of of what goes into deciding what. Uh, we should be doing or what we ought to be doing, what policies we should uh, should be putting forth in our community. At the same time, uh, data doesn't always get us to those very specific prescriptions. Um, it can be very uh, persuasive in, in saying that one, one policy is better than another, uh, but at the same time, connecting the data to very specific policies and prescriptions is a matter of, uh, or is yeah, a matter of considering values and um, thinking about what generally we should be, is the right thing to do uh, in terms of, of local government. Um, so I want to, I want to ask that, so you can address also, because I know there's, there's been a uh, great deal of controversy about how poor our data gathering has been over the years. How do we mitigate that? And then two, what are the values you hope to represent in your in your decision as decisions as county commissioner connecting the data to to policies? I do have a science background. Uh, I'm also, and I am a scientist, and I do have a questioning mind, and I do value process and understand data. But because I have at one time done data analysis. I also understand the limitations of the data, especially when you're talking about all of humanity, when you're making decisions about social justice or environmental justice, their policy and, and data are not multifaceted enough or all-encompassing enough that it's going to get you where you need to go to be a just community. The other piece of who I am is, in essence, a storyteller. So the, the processes that I currently work through with grassroots organizations and that I would just bring into the arena of civic engagement as an elected official starts with listening to the stories of all the people and especially finding out where they are suffering because of systemic injustice. It, and because I've done justice work, I, I have a clearer understanding than I did when I first started working with some of the organizations I do 
just what is required to make systemic change. Uh, so that's that's a that's maybe one whole conversation too. But it we we have this this tension or this conflict around the fact that sometimes we don't have enough money or uh, we don't currently have the tools to get data that's very sound. Um, and so we have to rely on on those stories of people and we have to be connected to and in relationship with a lot of different people so that that their stories and their testimony and their deliberations can factor into the work that we do and the decisions we make. So it kind of gets back to that civic engagement. Um, you never make, you shouldn't make decisions based on data alone. These are philosophical questions and we need practical, we need a practical application. So yeah, I guess, I guess that the way you ensure, or I know, the way that you ensure that you don't make decisions that are too one-dimensional or uh, too narrow in their focus is by ensuring that you have this deep civic engagement process. Just to sort of recapitulate what, what you've sort of been bringing up so far is process is important when uh, deliberating about which policies and, and specific prescriptions we should pass regarding local government. And part of that process is engaging with the public, engaging with as many voices, engaging with as many perspectives as we possibly can to ensure that we're not, as you, as you just mentioned, uh, thinking too narrowly uh, about how we govern our, our community. Uh, to ensure that no one is is missed or uh, made least well off in in uh, in in our deliberations, um, and so one and to sort of focus uh, again on I guess the main the main point of this co uh, question uh, was to uh, question about the values you want to make sure are represented in your in your decisions as as a county commissioner. So one one thing I wanted to kind of go back about data, um, it, it, sometimes it it isn't as much data as the problem as it is the IT that we use. So let me give you a specific example. Uh, Douglas County has contracted with Johnson County to uh, to use a program that Johnson County developed. Um, and here's the backstory about what Johnson County did. Uh, Johnson County looked at five different people who were engaged or in the system, you know, in jail. They may have uh, had mental health problems. They may have had substance abuse problems. They may have been homeless. Uh, they may have had a parole officer. But at any rate, there were people who were really enmeshed and falling through the cracks in the system. And they these five people agreed to do a case study on their lives and follow them through all the processes that they, and, and all the stages that they had of going through incarceration or whatever. 
And what they found the, was that often people had sometimes a dozen different, a case manager, a substance abuse counselor, a, you know, a, a jobs counselor, a parole officer. There were all these different people that they were answerable to or accountable to, and these different steps that they had to successfully complete in order to eventually become a free person and, and be back out on their own something that they may or may not have been equipped for once it happened. The system was really designed to make these people fail because none of the different agencies were talking to each other or sharing any information. And so they figured out a way that they could share information about a person with their permission so that they could ensure that they succeeded as they made their path through the system. Right. So that's an example of it isn't the data as much as it is the system or the process that we use. And the IT itself wasn't the problem. It was the non-collaboration amongst all these agencies. And there's a human story in the center of it, this one person or these different people who are failing at multiple points throughout the system rather than being restored at any of those points. So, so that's one piece. The values that I have have everything to do with justice and my desire to see justice. And we, we to do that, you know, to, to see justice, we have to dismantle those parts of systems or those systems that allow the injustices to perpetuate. We have to expose the harm and examine the conflict, and we have to provide opportunity. So all of that, I think, is encased in that story that I just told you about what Johnson County did for people who were in the system. My values are, uh, I want, I have a great deliberation or a great dedication to uh, seeing people's lives restored and seeing them have a chance to either heal their life or have a whole life to be housed, to have support services that they need to, to get them on their feet. And so any decision that I make in collaboration with other elected officials needs to be toward dismantling those parts of the systems that don't work and uncovering them however we need to do that and, and to making people more whole. Communities who have invested in that, sometimes it does require getting better data, and that's a piece of it, yes. But it, it, it has everything to do with being connected to the people that you represent. I think that trust and compassion are really important values to me. I feel connectedness to all people, and that is a driving force behind the work that I do and how I would represent people. I feel that we need to sustain this place that we call Douglas County and we call home, and that people can't thrive if they're not taking care of the place they live in. So that's a piece of it too. So the, I think those are the values.
Great. Thank you. And I, I think another way of, of, uh, bringing more of this discussion out is, um, I think what many, it seems like what many of the candidates are aware of is how much a budget can, of, of, of a governmental entity reflects the values uh, of those in office, those and uh, and and hopefully to to greater extent of the community. And I think with the current pandemic having great deal of de- maybe devastating effects on uh, many facets facets of uh, of life. Do you foresee uh, the pandemic having uh, serious consequences for for the budget? Uh, and two, if so. What are some of the things that you would like to prioritize in this budget, given that maybe there you might have to take those um, those questions of priority uh, to greater to to heart, uh, given given the sort of effects that the pandemic might have? That's yeah, and that's a huge question and a profound one. So I always. Uh, start by trying to have a clear understanding about what impacts the budget, the county budget was having on all of the departments and all of the agencies it was serving before the pandemic. I've done a little bit of a dive into the budget and been looking at that, uh, but I really need to make it through the primary and then We'll sit down with uh, the county administrator and the financial director and start talking to all the different people. Now, I have been out in Eudora and Baldwin a little bit and need to go back, but have started asking the questions about uh, of them and you know going to the conservation board and um, the conservation district board and different agencies to understand how they work, what work they do, and what role the county plays in that and what role other agencies or, you know, what parts of their budgets are self-sufficient and et cetera. There are a lot of people who rely on the county to fund the, the work that they do, and it's uh, much of it's critical. You know, there are infrastructure and land use questions that, that the county oversees. And, and you know, we, we, we can't become less good stewards of those things that we were doing before. Uh, the other part of this, though, too, is I, I don't think that the county, I don't hear conversations uh, about how the county budget impacts the people who live here. So not looking at those agencies, but looking at actual individuals. The The mill tax levy has, for Douglas County, has gone up 42% in the last 10 years. So that means it started right after the Great Recession, and it is a bigger, much bigger jump than any other uh, population center in the state, I believe. Now, I'm, I need to look more carefully at those numbers uh, after the primary, but the, the next biggest jump, I think, is Wyandotte County at 28%. And Sedgwick, actually, their mill levy went down like 
negative 1.5 or something percent. So I I want to understand what were all the factors that that happened that played into that. Uh, we have. I know that because of the pandemic, the uh, county administrator has announced that they're not going to raise the mill levy. You know, they're not going to raise any any taxes now at this time. But land valuations are continuing to go up. Property values are are assessing higher. And again, because of the work that I've done in affordable housing, I know that we've been in conversation with landlords, both people on the market who are just community-minded, who are providing affordable housing on the market, and people who are providing housing through public, uh, publicly subsidized housing, that those increases in their property tax affects their ability to manage and maintain and uh, have an income to to maintain their their units. So on the market that's definitely going to get passed on to tenants. There has been real estate speculation especially in some of the older neighborhoods where people see the potential to gentrify and you know to to uh, and so it's it's not even Within city limits of Lawrence, this is desirable land. And so uh, land values, especially in some neighborhoods, have jumped up considerably. East Lawrence neighborhood is a good example. They have, I think they've had something like a 20% increase in their property values. And so therefore their taxes have gone up. Well, that's traditionally been a a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, uh, and very mixed income with a, a good proportion of people on fairly fixed incomes living in that neighborhood. That is going to have consequences and effects. So if, if the county is making land use decisions or working with developers and not ensuring that there's a high public benefit associated with the new projects, we're going to get into trouble. So some of the answers are are not budget strictly, but I'd like to see, this is a good time for us as a community to have a real awareness of all of those interrelated things. Often people just kind of work in this silo and that silo, and they don't understand the impacts and the consequences of some of the decisions that are being made. They're kind of, so again, it's another reason for city and county to work so well collaboratively to get at these wicked problems, right? So yeah, I, I I think that we're going to have a honeymoon period for whoever gets elected. I'm hoping it's me and I will show up ready for the task uh, because we uh, the city or the county has got $9 million cash on hand. They were really poising themselves to build that jail tower. And so they've got some money short up. Because that was the goal, uh, I believe they have, well, I am seeing cuts to services that have happened over the last two or three years. Burt Nash has had their budget cut fairly substantially in the last three years. They're our primary community partner. So something's amiss there, and we need our mental health partners more than ever 
So if there's something that is 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 wrong with that relationship or something that that uh, needs to be healed within the organization, we need to support that and figure out what it is. And that might be a budget that needs to be restored. But then comes the harder question, where do you leverage where do you leverage the savings or the cuts? And no one wants to be sitting in the seat where where you you know you decide that. So it's 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 going to be tough, but I do think that there could be, especially with the the money that's coming into the community, I think there could be some ways to start some projects and start some actions and 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 kind of build some net networks and safety nets in place and then those programs can become self-sufficient once they once they're off the ground so i would want to look at things like that maybe some some creative or adaptive ways that we haven't normally done business in the county we ought to look at that there there is a problem at the jail uh, I, I've known people uh, who volunteer at the jail, and I, if I'm remembering correctly, as early as 2004, 2005, they were telling me there are some real problems with the women and, and you know, the way that women are being housed in the jail. So it's been a problem for a long time. Uh, the county looked at building some temporary buildings that would be there for 10 or 20 years. And... But at the time, they wanted to build the tower, and so it was kind of presented why this wouldn't work. But that's that would be three to five million dollars, or maybe a little more, you know, and staffing, which is a substantially lower cost investment, and we can get it built to spec so it does what we need it to do. So we can immediately alleviate whatever problems occur there because of the pandemic and then invest in the community, which is less expensive. It's less expensive to house people and get them proper mental health supports and supportive services than it is to invest in building buildings to incarcerate them. So that's a kind of a broad range, <laughs> a lot of broad sweeps that I made there in that conversation, but yeah, it. I won't make decisions alone with the budget, and I could be very provocative in kind of, you know, making some shots across the bow. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to get your budget. That's the most non-compassionate and confrontational thing to do, and it, it, it serves no purpose. Uh, I do think that there are some things that I'd like us to, I'm curious about, and I want us to have a conversation with the people who it'll most impact at the table. One of them is this idea of defunding the police. Well, when I read about what, you know, that that is very provocative in, in, in that phrase, it, it, it sounds confrontational. But when I look at some of the points behind that, I'm seeing things like, uh, and, and I'm hearing the police Police officers here in Lawrence themselves saying, we are often used for things that are actually not within the purview of our jobs. So we should have a fully funded and operational team of mental health outreach workers. We have some. I'm curious to know about that and to find out, you know, how much we need to expand it to go out with the sheriff's department, to go out with 
uh, with officers to help de-escalate situations and get people to a safe place where they're not going to harm themselves or others. And then we actually have facilities in town where we can take them. So those investments I'd, I'd like to see. And actually, a lot of the funding is for community health. You know, a lot. So I think we could really do these programs without impacting the 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 taxes and the you know the sales and the property tax collections that we currently have. You mentioned at the beginning, and I think throughout our conversation, that you're a storyteller. So this last question is going to try to honor that in some sense. Okay. All right. Um, and, and sort of uh, ask, I want to ask you, how do you hope, uh, or what story do you hope to tell at the end of your first term as county commissioner? I like that question. I think I might preface my answer by saying that if it might be helpful for me to let you understand how I imagine a storyteller becomes an elected official in the first place. You know, what role, what, how in the world does that connect to being a Douglas County commissioner? It, it sounds a little woo woo (laughs) to me, but in fact, uh, a lot of the, the work that I've done and, and the training and the thinking that I've done around bringing people together for difficult conversations and bringing people together for deliberations uh, involves a process of doing informational interviews with them and listening to them and acknowledging their grief and their hopes and their concerns. And then holding that and incorporating that into the work that I do. And this is, this is actually, that there's a very sound model for doing this or taking this particular approach to problem solving. A lot of the work that I've read comes out of the different working groups in the Harvard Negotiations Project. They... Uh, one of the books that I really like or the resources that I really like is a book called Difficult Conversations. And so this can be a community-wide discussion. The, the, the folks that work on the Harvard's, Harvard Negotiations Project ha, were part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions uh, after apartheid. And, you know, go to Springfield, Ohio after there's been a police shooting of of a, a a black teenager, and you know so the, the there these are conversations that are are full of grief and rage and uh, are completely necessary for communities to heal and to truly have a a, a valuable relationship with each other. So that's the kind of storytelling that I'm thinking about for elected leadership. It's getting people to look at their own self-interests and understand and recognize the self-interests of others. It's having me not giving a narrative of my opinions or the people who think like me, but it's me 
holding up a narrative that includes all of these stories and the well-being of all those people I've listened to over the years. So that's the kind of storytelling that I'm talking about. If I do my job well and take my responsibilities seriously, which having been me all my life, I believe I will, I think the stories that people will tell is she didn't promise me anything and then not keep her promises. She was honest with me when she could not give me yes. But she provided every opportunity for to empower me and my neighbors and people I was um, clashing with or people I felt disenfranchised by and got us to the table and I feel as if I am better off than when I first came and sat down in that conversation. If I do my job well, people will feel that the compromises they did have to make because there will be compromises were not so painful that they now feel disenfranchised from a process that they thought would serve. I think that people will say that I was compassionate and that I was fair and that I was honest about what constraints I felt I had in the decisions I had to make and that I took into account as much as I possibly could the impacts that my decisions would make on other people. Yeah, I think that would be the story. And that I'm a good baker. I might occasionally bring a cake <laughs> to the to the conversation. <laughs> cake always, I think, leads to decent conversations uh, and bringing people to the conversation, at least. Food does, generally. Well, if uh, and with that, uh, if you want to know more about Sarah and her campaign and, and where she stands on certain issues, you can go to her website at sarahfordouglascountykansas.com. Again, that's sarahfordouglascountykansas.com. Uh, with that, Sarah, I want to thank you for joining me today and having this conversation about you and your campaign. Thank you so much for having me. This was really a treat. I appreciate it. And thank you all for uh, listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of Horns Talks. Thank you.